So on these um, Monday evenings lately, uh, we've gotten ourselves into doing a series of talks, on uh, starting with mindfulness, a couple of talks on mindfulness and mindfulness practice, and then um, talking about concentration practice. And um, I'm going to continue a little bit more about concentration today, and then with the idea that maybe next week we can get on to um, the insight part of it. And this makes a nice sequence. It kind of they build on each other. The mindfulness first, mindfulness leads to concentration, concentration and mindfulness together then lead to insight. And insight, the mindfulness, concentration and insight together lead to liberation. And um, so the topic is concentration or samadhi. I covered a lot of it last week. When the um, Buddha set forth from his lay life, and went off to become a renunciant to kind of seek the answers to his solution to his his existential problems, his his uh, dilemma with suffering. He spent many years in a, as an ascetic, something like six years. And um, as the texts say, he became one of the great ascetics of his time. And he took the asceticism right up to the point of... Uh, right at the edge of death and then came, pulled back and when he got to the edge, edge of death and pulled back he reflected and realized that maybe this wasn't a good route for him because you know you could be ascetic uh, you know do the extreme level of it and die and you know he didn't really see that that was going to offer much solution so he um, was wondering what to do and then he had a memory I remembered a time when he was six years old and it was the time of the spring plowing festival and his father was kind of like the local king and or tribal chief and uh, so he was presiding over the plowing festival and so the people were out in the field doing the first royal plowing of the year and um, and he a six-year-old buddha buddha to be was left there the edge of the field underneath a rose apple tree and he remembered that event what it was like what he remembered was that he was sitting under the rose apple tree seemingly undisturbed by anybody else everybody else was off doing something else and in that uh, peace of being there he settled into a very deep sense of well-being sense of happiness that um, he remembered some 30 years later and in remembering that sense of well-being that he had as a child uh, he recognized that that sense of well-being was not did not come about by sensual pleasure. It wasn't like he was getting massage or getting any sex or eating good food or something. It, it was born independent of the causes and conditions of the world. It somehow was a, a sense of well-being and joy that just arose from inner causes and conditions. That was, and it was a joy and happiness which was pure or blameless. Now, for an ascetic, this was very important to have joy and well-being that is pure and blameless, because there was a feeling that you know, if you go off and do these kind of uh, other forms of sensual pleasure that you, you could engage in, that somehow for an ascetic and renunciant that was inappropriate. But here, he remembered he could have such a well-being that was free of the senses, in a sense. And then he thought, well, maybe this isn't the way to go forward. Rather than denying myself in the way I've been doing as an ascetic, 
um, and trying to avoid pleasure and joy, maybe this particular form of well-being can be a route of deepening my spiritual life. And, um, and so then, when he sat under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment, he kind of relived or re-evoked that level of well-being that he had as a child. And that became the foundation for going deeper into his meditation practice than, um, than he'd ever had before. And that became the, possi- the, the stepping stone for his liberation. He identified that well-being that he has had as a child as being uh, the first, what's called the first jhana, the first uh, level of meditative absorption. As people do concentration practice in Buddhism, um, there's uh, different uh, 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 altered states of consciousness, different stages or steps uh, of meditation that can occur. And some of, them have, some of these have kind of like a step-like uh, fashion or kind of quantum shifts, kind of shifts that are kind of discernible, like shifting gears. You're in the first gear, and then you're in second gear, and third gear, and fourth gear. So there are um, four primary absorptions, and then uh, four, which I guess they're not overdrive, but four that are above those, which are not mentioned as much. And, um, and these are considered very important for the degree of stability, insight, and purity they can create for the mind. And having that joy and purity becomes a, a very important um, uh, condition for deep insight and for liberation. So that's the task for today, is to describe for you these four absorptions states. And, um, and in doing that, uh, there is not a little bit of conflict or controversy around these states. Uh, there's controversy about what exactly are they. And there are what's called, these are called jhanas, J-H-A-N-A. And I've heard the expression that's ventured around called the jhana wars. And the jhana wars are that, you know, one teacher says, this is what really is the meditative, this is what really qualifies. And someone else says, no, that's not as qualified, that's too light. It's lightweight meditation. And we have the right thing over here. We're stronger. And then someone else comes along. Oh, no, no, you don't have it either. We, you know. and, um, and so there's uh, this uh, controversy that exists about what exactly these states are. But there's no controversy about, how the, is a, uh, 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 about the shifting of gears. There's a certain things which are considered to be um, uncontroversial. And there's certain things that happen in each of these four steps. There's four stages. There's certain things that happen in each one. And um, one way of understanding the controversy is, um, is not what happens in the states, but the intensity in which it happens in. And so some people uh, have uh, what's called jhana light. And, uh, and some people have you know, jhana heavy. And so there's different you know, understandings. And, and um, the other controversy is about, uh, how you, uh, is it about um, the dangers of jhana. Some people fail, it's very, feel it's very dangerous to get involved in these deep meditative absorptions because it's possible to be uh, sidetracked in your meditation practice and your path to liberation. There's so much joy in them that you get attached to the joy. Um, you spend endless amount of time trying to get to those states of meditation. Um, for some people, it's very hard to get concentrated. And so if you set these up, these, these meditative absorptions as the goal, an important goal for the practice, uh, some people are going to be bitterly disappointed. 
And um, then other people have some ability to get concentrated and they're able to fall into these states. And then so not, not a few people then get arrogant. They look at me. Because getting into these deep meditative states is not the same thing as being liberated. It's just, you know, deep meditative states. So um, there's some kind of, you know, psychological difficulties people have in relationship to them, uh, um, both in, in not getting them and in getting them. There's competitive meditation. People, you know, feel, you know, trying to get there before everybody else. And, um, and there's all kinds of problems. And so, um, and then there's, and then there's the measuring yourself. You know, have I gotten there yet? And the person, people come to the teacher and want the teacher to issue them a certificate almost, you know, <laughs> saying, you know, yes, you're, you're in, you know, got the first one, you're in the second one. And then they know they've done something successful. And that's not very healthy to have that kind of certificate approach to meditation. <laughs> and, um, and in some, 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 some places, the understanding is that it's very hard to get into these states, especially the jhana-heavy people. And uh, there are people who will spend years and years and years uh, trying to cultivate uh, uh, the ability to get to these deep states. And um, maybe some of it has to do with not getting really good teachings, but they certainly try a lot. There's a lot of strong effort. And there are other people uh, who seem to fall into it relatively easy. Another controversy in relationship to it is how necessary it is, is it to enter into these deep meditative absorptions um, if you want liberation. And there's one school of thought that says they're uh, indispensable. You have to have it. There's no ultimate liberation without going through these. And another school of thought that says you don't need them at all. You can, you can bypass them. You can just do mindfulness. The mindfulness will lead to deep insight and insight will lead, lead to liberation. And so uh, the controversies go round and round. So that's, you know, and I have my own views, of, you know, of course, right? And, um, um, but regardless, um, even people, sometimes people who are not interested in them, don't even know what they are, will fall into these states um, by accident or just happen to fall into them. And so then it's sometimes good to know what they are and have some sense of what they are. Um, whether, you know, I don't know, you know, it's a controversy is whether you're polluting people's minds by telling them about these things and they're better, you're better off discovering it on your own without being told beforehand what they are or you're better off told what the map is beforehand and then it's a little bit easier for you to follow the path. And the unfortunate thing is that people are different from each other. The fortunate thing people is that people are different from each other. And, um, and so the, um, for some people, uh, getting the map and getting a description of how it works, um, they end up tying themselves in knots, trying to you know, do it just right. And they're better off not learning about it. And then in, uh, for other people, uh, they're, better, they're better off learning the map and really helps them and makes it really smooth and easy for them to go. So you have to be very wise and know which kind of person you are. And if you know which kind of person you are, then you won't have any problems, right? When I was in Thailand, when I, the first time I practiced in Thailand, the um, abbot there had a library. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big room, but it was full of books. More like a very, very big closet, walk-in closet. And, um, and you know, most of the books were in Thai. If I went in there, you know, I saw all these Thai titles. And I learned uh, sometime later, I don't know when, after I left, or the end of my th- right at the end of my stay there, that he actually did have 
books on English on Buddhist meditation. But he kept them hidden behind the portrait of the king. So you, you were in there, you wouldn't see it because the king was in the way, the big picture. And uh, the reason he kept them behind the portrait of the king was it was his uh, opinion or discernment that it was not useful for these Westerners who came to practice with him to see the books, you know, to learn all this, you know, book learning. So he kind of hid it there, the English books. So I don't know. So you've been warned. You know, caution. Hearing talks about, if you have, you know, a little disclaimer, you know, hearing talks about meditative absorption can be harmful for your psychological health. The uh, one argument, for, and one of the reasons why I, I want to teach it tonight is that if you know about the possibility of these things, then they're more, I think it's often more, poss- more, more likely to happen. Or there's, some, there's a healthy way of knowing about this possibility, and there's a healthy way of inclining the mind towards uh, attaining this possibility. And if you, don't, if you don't know what they are at all, you have no idea that there is, you know, organ, then you would never travel north and look for organ, you know. And, uh, but if you know organ is up there, then you'd maybe go visit. So when you know something is, uh, exists, then you, know, you can go, it's possible to go. So the beginning of these meditative absorptions, um, the, what's required is the mind has to stop being scattered or agitated or pulled off in, in distractions. And the primary distractions that are listed are the, what's called the five hindrances. So the mind needs to stop being pulled around by, jerked around by, the uh, sensual desire. Sensual desire is a normal thing for people to have, but if you sit down and get, try to get still, you'll notice that the sensual uh, desire keeps pulling the mind around, keeps it agitated, keeps it distracted, keeps it lost in, in objects, in the thoughts and the fantasies of, of sensual desire. Same thing with ill will. Ill, you can get caught, you can get, the ill will arises and the mind goes off into the subject of the of ill will. You know, the story, the people, the event, the thing, that thing. And the mind is kind of propelled out of itself, both with sensual desire and ill will. It's about something else. If you want the mind to settle on itself, ill will and sensual desire have to be put to rest, at least temporarily, so the mind can kind of be inwardly focused. The other thing is that has to be settled, naturally, is restlessness and anxiety. If the mind is restless, it's not going to be settled. So you have somehow that the restlessness and anxiety, agitation has to be settled. The other is sloth and torpor. If the mind is tired or lethargic or resistant, sometimes I think a sloth and torpor has, sometimes has an element of resistance in it, boredom, then um, the... Um, um, you know, you, you can't, again, can't do this deep settling because you just kind of drift off and be sleepy and dull and hazy. And then there can't be any doubt in the mind because doubt, again, is the mind gets caught up in the thoughts and concerns. Is this the right practice? Is this the right time? Is this the, am I the right person? Is this the right experience? And you're kind of always wondering this uh, uncertainty, perplexity that can arise. So this um, uh, uncertainty or, or vacillation that is, that is associated, called in English doubt, has to also be put to rest if the mind needs to be deeply settled on itself, become still and peaceful. 
So, um, whether you're doing mindfulness meditation or concentration meditation, the hindrances are very important elements to understand deeply, understand these five, five things very well, and then to um, s- somehow be able to settle them or overcome them, override them, to develop a mind that's concentrated enough, a sense of determination, resolve that's strong enough, that the mind's not inclined to go into these um, distractive thoughts but rather will stay on track on getting concentrated. The, um, so there's a lot of work. It could take months and years of working with these states of mind in order to um, be able to overcome them. You're not asked to overcome them once and for all. You're not asked, you're not asked to um, expect it that you can, you know, just that's it, you know. But what you're, what you're trying to do is temporarily put them aside. Temporarily so that uh, be there so they're not no longer... Um, getting in the way of your meditation practice. Once that happens, then the mind, then it's possible to begin applying the mind to get absorbed. <clears throat> applying the mind and getting settled and focused. Because then you can focus it on the breath, focus it on other objects of meditation, and the mind's not going to be pulled off left and right by desire, by sensual desire, by ill will, by restlessness in these things. It, it, you know, the mind is present. It's a time when the mind is, there's no sloth and torpor and no agitation. So the mind then has come to a place where it's energized and calm at the same time. And this is a very important quality to have. You can't, sometimes people think about meditation as only be about getting calmer, 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 and then you fall asleep. Because we have such desperate need to relax and de-stress that that's what we think meditation is about. But once you do the kind of the basic de-stressing, then it's important to not just push the calm factor, but also to be energized. And when these hindrances are put, uh, put aside uh, and meditation is going well, then the mind is calmly energized, energizedly, energizedly calm. And, um, and the image that I like is that of a candle flame that um, you know, if, if there's no wind at all, then the candle flame is completely still, it's unwavering. However, the inside the candle flame, there's all this heat, all this fire that's very active and very energized. So there's both energy in the fire and there's this complete stillness. So the mind, uh, the inner, inner kind of being, has this quality of being very quite energized or alert, at the same time very still, very steady. So when, that is, uh, so when that's there, then it's possible to apply the mind to, say, the breath. That's it. And then sustain the mind on the breath. There are two very important qualities. Applying the mind and sustaining the mind on what you want it, where you want to keep it. Many of us get very good at applying the mind. Oh yeah, I'll do the breath. But then as soon as we put the mind on the breath, off it goes. But to actually be able to sustain the attention on the breath, not just for 10 seconds or a minute, but actually the mind will stay there quite put. It's not going to go anywhere. You know, you, you, the sustainability of mind is there, and it could, you know, just basically won't go away. Maybe sometimes it'll drift. Sometimes... Visitors. Um, sometimes uh, the mind, you know... Before it gets in, when the hindrances are put aside, and um, before entering into these absorptive states, 
the, uh, the mind still might wander off into thought a little bit, but the power of the thinking is not so strong that it's going to distract you in the thoughts. The kind of the thoughts might come, and I've had the sense sometimes of, like there's a rubber band attached to my thoughts, and so the thoughts go out and stretch the rubber band, and it gets, gets you know, and then it gets, the rubber band just pulls the thoughts back. It's almost like a natural process. I don't have to almost do anything, but you kind of the mind just bring, comes back, comes back almost automatically. Um, and the thoughts are very light, very thin, um, if they're there at all, and, and uh, it's pretty easy to kind of keep the attention. Um, so that has to be there. There has to be this ability to, to uh, place the attention and sustain the attention. Um, then, um, at some point, there's a state shift that happens as you keep your attention there. And, um, and state shift is, is your, kind of your whole being begins changing in some way. There's a feeling of uh, variety. Different people feel that state shift in different ways. Sometimes uh, there's warmth that happens, sometimes in parts of your body, sometimes your whole body gets warm. Um, I've had situations where I got, uh, it hasn't happened more than a few times for me, but where I've gotten so hot, it was really cold. I came, sat down with a sweater on, and I got so hot that I took off a sweater and my shirt and was still hot. And I just couldn't, you know, because just, just this furnace was was produced inside of me that can happen sometimes with strong concentration more often it's kind of the heat is not that strong it feels warm or your body feels very light um, and um, sometimes feeling light transparent sometimes almost a sense of body begins to dissolve or disappear Um, the mind starts getting very still very buoyant uh, very soft Um, there's a variety of different things that might happen as we kind of do the state shift kind of thing at some point, um, one, of the, one of the things that begins happening in the state shift is a feeling of joy. Delight, joy. The classic word is piti in Pali, P-I-T-I, often translated into English as joy or rapture, um, happiness sometimes, some kind of delight or joy. And um, this delight and joy, um, it, the, in the beginning, is said to be born, is delight and joy that's born from seclusion. The joy that comes from having a mind which is no longer distracted. You know, you've been struggling in meditation for a long time with a distracted mind, with sensual desire, ill will, all these fear, you know, all these things. And it's not there anymore. And the mind is settled and ready to be present. It's there to be present. It's just a delight. There's a level of purity of the mind. The mind is now purified of distracted forces. And it's purified of boredom. And you're just right there and present and great and it's just wow this is great uh, happiness and joy born of seclusion born of this you know being, being able to be really present um, and um, and the other thing that happens is that the, at the, your, whole, your being your mind starts feeling unified and part of the definition of samadhi is a unification of mind. So all the different forces of the mind are unified and, and, and harmonized for the same purposes. All, everything's connected and engaged only in the, in the practice of meditation and concentration and focusing. You know, you're not being scattered or going off in different directions. So, the Buddha then gave this, these uh, similes for each of these four stages of absor- absorption of jhana. And the first simile for the first jhana goes like this um, now this has, these similes come from India 
And you maybe have to assume that India, with, you know, where the Buddha was, it was quite, you know, they, they often gets very hot there. The hot season is really hot. I was there in the hot season once. And so um, the word cool has different connotations in India than the word cool has in England. So, you know, we say someone's, you know, like nowadays in America being cool is good, right? But, but um, you know, if someone has a cold, you know, they're, 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 I got the cold shoulder, or they're kind of cool to me or something. It's kind of not so good. But um, uh, in, uh, in, you know, we, we like being warm-hearted. That's really nice for us, right? Because we're from, you know, the language is from England. So being warm-hearted is kind of nice. And it's, you know, cold, rainy, you know. But in India, where it tends to be more likely to be hot, uh, being cool was really good. Cool being refreshed from all the heat. So having a cool heart, that's really good. Okay? <laughs> and looking, unless you look at someone. <laughs> I don't want to say things that... Um, so, um, so the image has to do with a cool, refreshing lake. So remember hot, right? Hot, hot. So cool, refreshing. That's great. It's a place you want to go swimming, right? Get it, you know, go get it, get refreshed. And in this cool, refreshing lake, there's no rain that fills it up. You know, fills it. And there's no uh, creeks or rivers flowing into the lake. The lake is only fed by a deep spring that wells up from the bottom of the lake with very pure, beautiful water, clean, fresh water that has wonderful, nice, cool, refreshing feeling. And you're, maybe you are the lake or, you, or you, you're in the lake and you kind of just feel this current of cool, refreshing uh, water kind of the, you know, moving through, flowing through, flow. So that is uh, the simile for the, the first jhana, where the joy, this rapture that you feel, is energized, it's moving, it's a flow, it's, you know, you feel this, it's like feeling this flow of energy, this flow of joy and delight that's moving through you. And sometimes it can flow through very intensely, and sometimes it's not so intense, it vari- the intensity can vary from person to person from time to time. And, um, but it, it, uh, and not, it doesn't always feel refreshing if it's very, very intense for some people. But, um, but there's, you know, generally there's a wonderful feeling of energized movement, and uh, all that. And uh, once this kind of... Uh, and so, this joy is also, also then uh, represented by moisture, by water here. No, no, you know, wait, oh, wait. I just blew it. That's just terrible. I just gave you a simile for the second jhana. Okay, boy. I got it all messed up. I so... Now I've confused you all. So the um, the um, so moisture and water is is used to represent and the simile is used to represent this joy. And this first uh, uh, jhana is represented by um, a a bath attendant. In ancient India, they had bath attendants when you went to public baths, I guess. And um, they had the soap that they made from dried soap powder. And um, and so you take this uh, dry soap powder and you'd sprinkle it with water and you'd knead it until you get the water saturating it and, and saturating the, the powder until you had a wet, moist ball. 
much like how we would make a, a, a dough. You know, you take the dry flour and you wet it. And you get just amount of water in there so it's not dripping with water. It's, but it's saturated. The water pervades and saturates all the flour, all the powder. And you have this moist ball. So in the same way, a person makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. So, right? So you have this sense of happiness or delight that comes from no longer having a mind which is out of control. And you're really present, secluded from the hindrances. And you take, you, and you, you, and you, you take that joy and, and rapture. And you don't just let it be as it is. But the, the Buddha gave this instruction. The bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Isn't that pretty good? So, you you know, you have some joy and then you kind of work the joy into your whole body like you would work moisture into the the powder until your whole body is saturated with this, this, this joy and delight. Pretty good. Then uh, you probably didn't know you were dry. Mm-hmm. Right? And here you're supposed to get wet. Meditation is supposed to moisten you. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. Moisten you with joy, joy because, you know, you're dry and brittle. <laughs> From a meditation point of view, you know, everyday consciousness is kind of dry and brittle. So then the second... Um, 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 but the, you know, so in this image of the, of the moisture, you know, of, of kneading, there's a, there's a doing here. There's sprinkling the water in, and there's kind of applying the water in, and massaging the water into the powder. There's a doing there. So the, uh, this is a little bit uh, similar to the, um, the the two important qualities of entering into this first absorption is having the ability to place the mind on an object of attention and then to sustain it there. You know, just placing and sustaining. To enter into the second jhana, to shift it to the next level, the meditator has to somehow or other um, be able to let go of, drop that doing. That is, as the doing of placing and applying and sustaining. That oomph, that little push, or kind of sustaining, or kind of holding yourself there. And you, so you can, you can still keep your attention very present and keep it, you know, one-pointed on, for example, the breath. But there's no longer needed any effort to do that on your part. Make sense? Because that effort is a little bit, uh, you know, keeps the mind at a coarser state. As you go through these four stages, you're going to more and more subtle or refined states of mind. So you have to let go of the coarser factors in each state to be able to move to the more refined one. So the meditator has to learn how to let go, or let go, let go this this uh, placing and sustaining of attention. And when that happens, then there's a new kind of joy that gets born, and this is called the, here in this translation, the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. So rather than happiness being born from seclusion, it's a happiness that is born from being concentrated. And so it's really wonderful. This thing is once the mind gets concentrated enough that uh, uh, that uh, concentration itself, the byproduct of it, is a kind of, is joy and rapture and delight. It's really a great thing. You can actually feel yourself holding a concentration and getting stronger in the concentration. It's like, like massaging or working or 
um, you know, having a bellows, kind of strengthening the fire of concentration. So the um, um, so this this is the in this in this uh, simile is the one about the lake with the f- flowing uh, upflowing upwelling of the of the spring water from below. And here it's that rapture uh, that uh, comes in this state, which is more pronounced, is this flowing energe- energetic sense of of uh, joy that's there. Now that flowing energetic rapture. As nice as it is, is the, the, the next coarsest thing that has to be let go of. And someone, what? You know, I, I've been meditating for years and I finally have this great rapture, you know, and you know, the rapture has happened to me and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's going to be quite intense and people say it's better than orgasm. You know, so, and then you're telling me you have to let go of that? Well, yes. It's, you have to be able to let go of that because it, it keeps everything a little bit coarse compared to the next level, which is more refined. So then the meditator lets go of the rapture or the intensity of this joy. And what's left, the next factor that becomes strong, that stands out, that characterizes the third jhana, is not joy or rapture, but uh, happiness. Some people to call it pleasure. Um, because... Um, it is more subl- it's, a, it's a happiness that's more sublime than joy. Joy is energetic and, and, and mind is kind of energized in a certain kind of way. And actually, if you have enough of this kind of rapture, it actually starts becoming a little bit irritating for some people because it's just, you know, it's so, so it gets to be too much after a while. And, um, and so this happiness is much more sublime, much more peaceful. And much more satisfying, it's much more physical. That's why people call it pleasure. Rapture has a quality of being um, mental more, and the and the rapture has a more physical quality, where the body is pervaded with a very deeply satisfying uh, sense of well-being or of happiness. Now, the simile for this is um, also has to do with the lake, but this is a, again, you know, think of a refreshing, cool lake. But this is a lake which um, has no movement in it, but it's pure and clean and everything, I suppose. But uh, lotuses are, grow- grow- are growing on this lake. And there's lotus blossoms on the lotuses. And some of these lotuses and lotus blossoms are of different colors. And some of them are under the water. Apparently, I, I didn't know this until I read the simile, apparently some lotuses, lotus plants, will spend their whole life under the water, they never break the surface of the water. So um, there'll be, you know, the roots there, the stem, the leaves, and including the blossom can occur under the water. And um, and so this, so they're, they're, you know, they're, they're um, no part of the lotus plant is not surrounded and touched and nourished or tended by this cool, refreshing uh, water. So in the same way, um, the sense of movement has dried, uh, and the flow has fallen away because that's a little bit agitating to have flowing sensations. This rapture has fallen away. There's a sense of stillness there, and it's kind of like floating. It's a wonderful feeling, kind of a wonderful image, right? There, floating in this wonderful, refreshing pond, and it's all the water is refreshing, and no part of uh, the lotus, no part of the body, is not touched by this refreshment of, uh, that comes from this wonderful, sublime sense of happiness. At this point, the mind is very, very still. Um, uh, you know, there's not going to be 
if there's any thoughts at all, it's going to be no thoughts at all that are going to be distracting or anything but anything different. Some people insist there's absolutely no thought in this state at all. The mind kind of gets into this very deep sense of stillness, of peace. Discursive thought has long since gone away. You're not going to have a discursive thought anymore, you know, thinking about what happened to you in high school or what you can have for dinner. Uh, the mind is very, very still, very, very peaceful. And it's quite such a relief to have a mind that's so still and quiet. So then, um, um, one of the uh, characteristics of this third jhana is a very deep state of equanimity. So there's a tremendous equanimity. Equanimity, uh, for those who, uh, meditative equanimity, for those people who have experienced it, is very, very satisfying, satisfying state. It's so peaceful, so feeling so right, so satisfying. The uninitiated equanimity can seem like, well, what's good is that? It's kind of, isn't that maybe kind of indifference or boring or something? But here there's a very deep state of equanimity. And um, it's described as being a state where there's also a kind of mindfulness. The mind is very mindful. The mind is very, there's a tremendous purity of mind. And so the mindfulness is particularly powerful because of that purity. When the mind is impure, meaning when the mind is caught up in distractions and sensual desire and ill will, and um, the, you know, it clouds the mindfulness. And that's one of the, one of the reasons why this deep concentration is so useful is it gives you kind of a, a, a clean window to see through. So then, the next state shift is the fourth absorption. And the fourth, fourth absorption, um, this happiness, this is so sublime and so satisfying, is the coarse thing, that next coarsest thing that has to be let go of. What? These Buddhists, you know, they're always telling me, you know, I knew it was true, these Buddhists, you know, not, you know it's all about suffering. You know, I'm not allowed to have any happiness. But actually, it gets better. You know, it's actually going from better to better to better. And even though you have to let go of the happiness, you have trouble hearing? A little bit? Maybe we could turn it up a little bit? I don't know. People, other people have trouble hearing? No? So, um, the, um, the next, um, so it next involves letting go of this happiness. So the mind can shift and settle or fall into the fourth absorption. And, um, and here, you're letting go of happiness. Though, though, because it's so physical in nature, this sense of well-being, um, many people prefer to translate it as pleasure. And it works well because then you can contrast it with pain. So you're letting go of pleasure, which you don't want to do, right? Mm-hmm. But you're also letting go of pain. So in this, in this deep uh, fourth jhana, there's neither pleasure nor pain. And that's, you know, so there's a kind of, equini- a kind of equanimity, deep equanimity, where you're not going to experience any pleasure or pain at all in your meditation. Isn't that good? That's, that's part of it. And there's no, uh, there's a long since, anyway, um, 
So you enter into the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure as part of it, but which has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. So the equanimity, equanimity first started appearing in the third jhana, and now there's kind of a perfection of equanimity and a purity of mindfulness. So mindfulness is an important part of this concentration practice. It isn't concentration or mindfulness one or the other. There's, some, there's, a, there's a kind of a perfection or purification of mindfulness in the fourth jhana. And that's one of the reasons why it's said it's so useful to, have, to, to enter this uh, deep concentration. Um, and then one sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind so that there is no part of this whole body unpervaded by the pure, bright mind. So at this point, the mind feels very, very pure and very bright. And, um, and it's a wonderful thing to kind of be able to kind of, fall, kind of fall back or look back, reflect back or see um, the purity of the mind itself. Rather than the mind looking at the world out there and the concerns out there and things out there, there's a deep kind of turning around and the purity of the mind, the radiance of the mind, uh, is so strong and so powerful that it becomes uh, palpable or becomes you know, very clear. It just kind of becomes like the, you know, you know, you know, you know it becomes like this beautiful thing that you're looking at. It's tremendous beauty. One of the most beautiful things you'll ever see is a pure, radiant mind. And, um, but then you take this pure, radiant mind and you pervade this purity and this radiance throughout the body. Just as though a man were sitting covered from head down with a white cloth so that there would be no part of his whole body not covered by the white cloth so too a monk sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of his body unpervaded by the pure, bright mind. So here, it's, uh, uh, the water image has stopped. You know, the first three absorptions, there's water. There's the moisture of the powder, there's the, the lake with the spring, and then there's the still lake with the lotuses. And here there's no more water because the water is associated with this happiness and joy. And now happiness and joy has fallen away. And, uh, and now it's like this person, maybe who just comes out, has come out of the, the pond, the lake, been totally refreshed, and they're sitting on the edge of the pond, covered with this beautiful, white, pure cloth, brand new cloth. And it's, it's dry, it's pure, and, you, and it's, it's self-contained. And it's kind of inward, you're kind of covered. So there's kind of an inwardness, kind of a, a, a oneness or a, or, a, or a unification that's kind of inward directed into the sense of purity. It reminds me of when I was a kid sometimes being like um, inside a small little tent or something or, and you know, just wonderful light coming through and feeling so wonderful and contained and safe and peaceful. And I don't know if you, any of you have had that experience, but something like that. Um, sometimes... Um, I can remember as a kid sometimes actually being covered by blankets and feeling so safe and nice, you know, and a little bit of light coming through. And so, um, so here you have this dry cloth, you know, that covers you, kind of in this bubble, perhaps. So, um, so it's a progressive movement. Um, 
it's a kind of a natural movement. I think of it as a natural pattern, a natural movement that happens. It's not something artificial. I mean, it's artificial in the sense that it's something that is possible to become adept at, become a master at, and you can kind of some people can move through these quite easily. But they are um, they're kind of a natural pattern of the mind, natural uh, movement of the mind, if the mind is going from coarser to more refined states. There's letting go of the coarser states and moving to more refined states. As the mind gets stiller and stiller, it goes and uh, maintains this energized quality. It moves through these different steps and stages. They're some of the most satisfying things a person can experience in this life. Um, and uh, one other thing, and, and people have become good, really skilled have them as a tremendous um, resource they can drop into um, on short, relatively short notice, and they have a lot of benefits. They can, um, they're very purifying, they're very cleansing, they're very refreshing, and, um, and they become the, the, um, a very, very good foundation for doing insight practice, for moving into the next level of practice with insight. It's possible to develop insight and go very deep with insight without these jhanas. Some people, my impression is that some people have, people have different, different people have different kinds of minds. Some people have more mindfulness minds. Some people have more concentration minds. The concentration minds have a relatively easy time with getting concentrated. Some of the extreme mindfulness minds don't have an easy time with concentration. But it's really, but it can be much more easier to do mindfulness. They can go really far with the mindfulness. So it depends on what kind of mind we have, you know, which path we we take or where we fit. Um, so we have to be sensitive to how we are. So I hope that was interesting for you to get this kind of account. I hope it gave you a little taste or sense of a possibility that. Um, um, Perhaps it's actually possible for each of you. It's not an easy thing to do, but um, it, it requires a degree of persistence and resolve that um, uh, without the persistence and the resolve that this is, you know, that you're going to really settle down and, and do it. That's not going to happen. And without um, knowing about the possibility of it, perhaps uh, uh, it's too easy to kind of be complacent and think it's okay just to kind of mindfully to kind of watch the mind wander around and go into this desire and that the ill will and just be mindful of this and accept this and, and uh, as if that's what mindfulness is. Um, so it's uh, after nine o'clock, I apologize. There's no time for questions. If any of you have any questions about this or are confused by what I, what I said, you're welcome to come up here and ask questions. So thank you.